0: We'll open your Bibles to Mark fifteen, if you would. Mark chapter fifteen. Easter is the day the Church has traditionally set aside to to rejoice in the in the gospel, and in particular the the death and resurrection of our our Lord. We we celebrate these truths every Sunday but it is the explicit focus of of Easter. Jesus Christ was not a philosophical teacher or visionary leader that others followed. He is the one that God promised to sin, to save us from our sin. And Jesus promised his followers that one day we would be raised like, like, like him. This historical fact, this enduring truth, is the bedrock of what it means to be a Christian, and it's the, the hope of the, the world to come. I mean, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not simply a component of the gospel, it's the nucleus. It's what makes everything else possible. And so today we celebrate in response to that truth. We, we gather this morning, we pray, we, we sing, and we'll feast with our families later and, and, and a lot more but have you ever thought about what was God's response to, to Easter? You ever thought about Easter from that angle? We, we think about it from, from our perspective. We, we gather, we celebrate, but, but, but what did Easter look like from, from, from God's perspective? We remember and rejoice, but how did God respond to the events that took place on Calvary and in Joseph's tomb? Well, that's what I'm going to show you today from Mark 15. And I want to take you to a section in which the Bible views Easter from God the Father's vantage point. And as we walked through the Palm Sunday and the Passion Week, last Sunday and Thursday, we heard about several characters that played a vital role in, in our salvation. They were the rulers that plotted the Lord's death, the woman who anointed Him beforehand, Beforehand, Judas, who betrayed him, the disciples in the upper room, Peter, who boasted and then denied the Lord. There were those who were there at his arrest and then his trial, the, the soldiers who arrested him, um, Malchus, who tempor- temporarily lost his ear, Annas and Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin who led the Jewish trials. There, were, there was Pilate and Herod and the crowd. Uh, who were at the Roman ones. There, there was even the Simon who was co-opted to, to help Jesus on the way to the cross. You might even think about the two criminals that were crucified on the, the right and the left hand of the Lord. But the one person that we have not heard from yet is God the Father. And yet He is in the background moving everything, all of these events toward the death of His Son the whole time. We're so self-focused that we often read the Bible upside down or backwards. It was written to reveal God to us, but we often think that the Bible is all about us. Um, Of course, God reveals Himself in Scripture so that we might know Him. I mean, God wants to be known, but He's the main focus of Scripture, not us. Test yourself to see how natural that, that... this, this is for you to think of yourself whenever you read the Bible. We instinctively think when we come to a passage of Scripture, I mean, what does this passage mean to me? I mean, how do I apply it in, in, in my life? Long before we, we, we wonder, what does God say here? What does this teach me about, about the Lord? I mean, we look for immediate application instead of what is eternally truthful. I mean, we even often think of the gospel in terms of our, ourselves believe this and you'll go to heaven and you'll not go to hell. And it's true, but the focus there is on you, not on God's offense or not on God's glory. People often even think of God from the point of of self. I mean, God reveals himself in the Bible and we evaluate whether we like that or not. We say, well, I don't know if I can believe in a God who does X or or why, or, or why is God this way, or why did he do it that way, as if he is evaluated by us? And this baked-in human tendency was, was illustrated really well by a question that R.C. Sproul was once asked at a Ligonier conference. During a Q&A, the, the, the question comes in, and then there's a panel of people who are supposed to respond to it, and so it's kind of a moderated question. It's not just speaking from the floor, and so here's the question that comes to the panel that R.C. is part of, and the question says, since God is compassionate, long-suffering, slow to anger, and patient, why then, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? After the question, the panel kind of sat there in silence just for a second. And and after a short pause, R.C. pulls the mic up to his mouth and, and says, Time out. That God's punishment of Adam was so severe? The creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After God had said the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. And at the consequences of, of a curse supplied for quite some time, the, the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe. He said, what's wrong with you people? (laughs) This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The right question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we understand our sin and have any understanding of who God is, that's the question. That's how Sproul responded. But that's where our hearts go, isn't it? If left unaided, unaided by, by something outside of us like the Bible, which is why we have our scriptures open this morning, because in front of us is the, the, the very words of God. And it calls us to stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about the Lord. And it does that by showing us who God is and who we are. We're not little gods who have the right to self-rule and to be worshipped, but a creature who was made from the dirt, accountable to the one who made us, who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, or the punishment would be much more severe. So today I want to show you the cross from God's vantage point. It's an angle that you might not normally think of. It's from the top down instead of the bottom up. It's from the vantage point of heaven, rather than earth. And it's in Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. The Father visits Golgotha in our passage today. And when He does, it's a terrifying and glorious scene. Mark 15, verses 33 through 39, that Paul read for us this morning, is the high watermark of the crucifixion. It's when darkness comes to the land of Israel. It's when all the fire of hell comes bearing down upon the sun, and it's when He completes... His atoning work. The Bible says at the sixth hour, which is noon, all of Judea went black and it remained dark for three hours as God comes to Calvary. And the scene reveals to us the Father's response to the cross. And there are actually three replies from the Father in total to the cross. And we'll call it three responses of the the Father to, to Calvary or to the cross. The first response is seen in the catastrophe of darkness that fell over the land. That's in verse 33. The second is found in the reason that Jesus cries out in desolation in verse 34. And the third is found in the contrast of of, of descriptions of, of what just happened. That's in verses 35 through 39. One's from the bystanders, one's from the father, and then... One's from the centurion who kind of wraps up this, this scene for us. He makes a declaration at the, at the end. Let's look at the response of, of darkness. Look, if you would, at verse 33. It says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the, the ninth hour. The, the sixth hour would be, would be noon, According to the Jewish day, uh, the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. My day began before that this morning, like some of, of yours. So, so 6 a.m. the day begins, and in this passage that we just kind of parachuted in the middle of, it's high noon, it's, it's, it's midday, it's, it's when the sun is at its brightest and its hottest point. And Jesus was placed on the cross at 9 a.m., and so the third hour, darkness falls over Jerusalem. Luke 23, 45 says the sunlight failed literally. Darkness fills uh, the entire interval uh, between now and and the death of uh, of Jesus. Now imagine, if you would, it's noon. It's in the in the middle of the day. Look like it's going to be a sunny day today, a beautiful day today, even though it started very cold. The sun is out and it's, it's brilliant sunlight today. This time of year, the, the angle of the sun. So it's noon in the middle of the day and all of a sudden, the sun is snuffed out and everything turns black as night. Not a gradual thing like an eclipse like one that's coming in 2024, people are trying to figure out where the, the total eclipse will be so they can go and they can watch it and the eclipse will phase in and then it'll phase out and it's this, this eerie, um, almost silver type of, of, of shade that falls over the earth. Nothing like that. This is a sudden blackness. There's no sunlight at all. I mean, that would catch your attention, wouldn't it? I mean, some try to dismiss this as a solar eclipse or some other natural phenomenon, but that's not possible because it was the full moon. It was the full moon during Passover, which we just had, by the way, like we do every Passover, like we do every Easter. In fact, that's how the date of Passover and Easter are set. It's, it's the Paschal full moon, which is why the date of Easter moves around rather than like Christmas, which is always on the, on the same day. I even read uh, one person's bizarre interpretation or explanation of this darkness in Mark. He said, it was the devil overshadowing the cross to do his work. Like the devil has any ability to do something like that. I mean, the Bible rejects all of that outright, of course. I mean, this is a miracle. This is not a natural occurrence. In fact, this is exactly what God said he would send. As a warning to unbelievers before the judgment. And, and the devil's not triumphing on the cross. He, he's trying to derail it. I mean, he's not in control of Calvary. The Father and the Son are. And this darkness is the Father arriving on the scene. And it's prophetic. It's symbolic. And in it, God declares something. We read over a passage like this, and, and we might miss the significance of that that reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. But the Jewish people should not have missed this significance. I mean, this is prophecy because it echoes what was foretold in the Old Testament. It's symbolic because it happened at the very first Passover in Egypt, and it's a declaration of what's going to happen to the leaders and anyone who rejects the sun one day. They're going to be in darkness. I mean, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord approaching is prophesied as darkness. And darkness is a sign of divine judgment. Look at Amos fifteen twenty. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it? Joel 1.15 says, Alas, for the day of the Lord... Uh, Uh, is near and will come as a destruction from the Almighty. And chapter 2, verse 10, up on your screen, tells us what it will be like. The earth will quake, the heavens will tremble, the sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will lose their brightness. Look at verse 30. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Amos eight nine declares when that will happen. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. I mean, the day Amos was talking about is when God brings cataclysmic judgment on the earth, the Day of the Lord. And this darkness on Calvary is foreshadowing that event. It symbolizes God's wrath. It, it symbolizes the Father's presence in divine judgment. And it should have brought repentance to any Jew. Who, who would have known this? I mean, every Jew knew about two things. Every Jew knew about the Messiah's coming. And he, they knew about the day of the Lord, which was when God would judge the unbelieving world. And God embedded that, these two magnetic poles into their feasts and readings to... To hold them secure, there was a there was a hope of of a promise that that would be would be salvation one day, and then there was a fearful warning of wrath if they didn't if they didn't heed. I wonder what promises and warning signs God has graciously provided you. Thought about that myself. Twenty four years of just passing over the things that were right in front of my face. Uh, maybe a friend telling you you need to turn to Christ. I had many do that. Family, people, maybe a parent warning you: "Don't go this way." You took us nagging. Maybe a closed door. You you kept trying to force open. I mean, heed the warnings; they're God's grace to you. This darkness, though, is also symbolic. It's prophetic. It's also symbolic. I mean, don't forget what week it is. This is the Passover, and they should have remembered the last time that darkness came at the, at the Passover. And this current darkness that's happening during the cross happens right in the middle of the feast. I mean, there were, there were millions of people or a million or so people in Jerusalem, and Passover lambs are being slaughtered. And it goes dark. You can't just flip the light switch on if you're in the middle of the temple practicing the sacrifices. You I mean, think about that. You remember what happened during the, the first Passover? Exodus 10 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, 'Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt.' So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. And now there's thick darkness in all the land of Judea. I mean, darkness covered the land of Egypt at the first Passover. It was the sign that God gave before His final plague, which was the killing of the, the firstborn. It symbolized God's curse resting on Egypt. It symbolized uh, to Pharaoh a curse that was coming, a greater one that was coming, if he didn't repent. And you know how the story goes. Pharaoh hardens his heart, and, and he wouldn't listen to God, and so the plague came. I mean, from, again, from a Jewish perspective, this is not rocket science. This is not... Some cosmic weird thing that's happening, like, like go fish, where God's trying to conceal what he's saying or, or what he's doing. I mean, this is open. This is plain. This is, this is Old Testament. And the same darkness now rests on the land of Israel at the final Passover as Jesus is on the cross. I mean, there's so much symbolism bondage in, uh, in Egypt in the Bible is a metaphor for sin. I mean, God's deliverance from Egypt is a symbol of God's deliverance from, from our bondage to sin. And now God is about to curse His own firstborn for them to bring about the death of His own firstborn rather than the firstborn in Egypt. And before He does, He warns His own people not to harden their hearts like, like Pharaoh did. And do you see the amazing unfathomable grace here i mean the cross is filled with opportunity after opportunity pleading after pleading to to stop and turn around god's still doing that today i mean this message is a is a plea to to listen to god's son and and not harden your heart and sadly the leaders of israel were, were just like pharaoh and rejected even this final call so So God declares their end. and The the sudden darkness is also a sign that that they requested in in verse 32. It's a confirmation of the the words of Jesus in in the trial as well. Look at verse 32. Look look at what they say in verse 32. It says, let this Christ, the king of Israel, uh, now come down from the cross so that we may see, there's the desire for a sign, and believe. Those who were crucified with him were were also insulting him. I mean, the leaders of Israel mockingly told Jesus, come down from the cross, if you're the Christ, if you're this this king, so that we can see and we can believe. And they didn't get that sign, but God gives them one now. It's a sign declaring that their days were numbered. They'll not believe, and in 70 AD, most of their families died and the temple was, was destroyed. On our last uh, Israel seminary class trip, and we were teaching the students there, I took the students to a town called Beit Sharim, which is uh, a place that you wouldn't typically go if you're, you're a Christian. Christians don't normally go there. I doubt you went there. If you ever went on a tour to, to Israel, you may have never even heard of it. But there's a, there's a cemetery there in the town, and we went to the cemetery. And I, I take them there for several reasons. One is it contains a number of burial boxes, uh, sarcophagus that goes from several centuries, and you can see how burial changed over, over the years. Another reason, uh, Rabbi Judah, the one who compiled the, the Mishnah, uh, is buried there. But there's this moment when we, we go back into the catacombs and you, you get to see all of these, these burial places, this burial chamber is underground, where I reveal the main reason for coming to, to this non-Christian place. Beit Sharim is the is the town where the Sanhedrin relocated after the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. and drove them out of, of Jerusalem. And after moving, a wa- uh, moving around for a while, they end up here. And so back in the catacombs, standing amongst these, these burial niches and burial boxes, I say here is where the descendants of the men who rejected their Messiah and their offspring were buried. The, one who, the ones who condemned Christ who went in the grave, he came out of the grave, they remain here and their children remain remain here. Jesus said when the Jewish rulers asked for a sign back in Matthew 12, 38. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in, three night in the belly of the, of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But, it, but he didn't stop there. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and something, someone greater than Jonah is here. Now watch the tenses of that passage that's up on your screen. It says, at the judgment. That's in the future. It says they will condemn this generation. That's future, but he's declaring it right now. And he says, why? Because the Ninevites in the past, they repented at the message that the Jewish people right now won't. And you had a greater messenger than Jonah. Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching, and you'll not repent the Son of God's. And you won't believe if I get off the cross. And you won't believe if I rise from the dead. So here is the sign for you. It's darkness and it's the one declaring your end. And God didn't bring judgment on them right then because he was pouring out his judgment on his son. But the sign was a declaration of what was coming in the future. Just like this prophecy. And it's the same thing that Jesus already declared to them in the trial. The Father just confirms it in the darkness. Do you, you remember in the trial of Jesus? We haven't read this passage, but you, you'll rifle back through your, your memory. You remember when, when they're looking for a witness to corroborate the, the testimony? They're bearing false witnesses against Jesus in the trial. And, and they can't, they, this one says this, this one says that, In Caiaphas senses the outcome of the trial slipping away because they can't get two witnesses to, 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 to agree. So, so he steps forward. He's been silent up to this point. He steps forward and demands that Jesus tell him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answers and says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and listen, coming with the clouds of heaven. Those are judgment clouds coming in the future in Daniel 7.13. And the Father is echoing Christ's words right here in, in darkness about the judgment that is to come. And God did this every single time, every single significant moment in Christ's ministry. You'll recall at the baptism when Jesus steps forward as the substitute. The Father confirms the Son's work. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He does it again at the transfiguration. Now, Right after Peter and the disciples make the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus says, upon this truth, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then he tells them for the first time how the work is going to be done. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And immediately then they go up on the mountain... And Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And then the Father speaks and confirms again. The cloud forms, overshadowing them, and a voice comes from the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. He changes it this time. I'm not satisfied in you, but I'm satisfied with this substitute. And once again, this is my Son. Listen to Him And now at the cross, the Father shows up again in darkness and confirms the work of the Son, confirms the the coming judgment that will happen by the Son on the last day. You and I don't need a sign like that. Peter tells us that we have something even more sure we have the word of God that declares to us it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That, that's more sure. What the Bible says is more sure than visions or dreams or even whenever they're legitimate from God. And that's what's coming in the future unless you come to God's son because he bore that judgment on the, on the cross. Here's the father's second response. It's, it, it's seen in this, this cry of desolation by Jesus. Look, if you would, at verse 34. There's the darkness. There's the Father showing up, declaring a lot in that darkness. His response to Easter, darkness. The second is revealed in this cry of desolation by Jesus. This is a response of withdrawal. Verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By this time, Jesus has already made three statements from the cross. The first one was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second was something he says to Mary and to John, to Mary, woman, behold your son, to John, behold your mother, because his own brothers were not believers at this point. And the third thing he, he said was to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And now he makes this fourth statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? C.E.B. Cranfield called this a, a cry of dereliction. It's a quote from Psalm 22. Jesus, even in this moment, is quoting scripture. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And he cries out in agony and he cries out in affirmation. This is the first statement where you can see Jesus' faithfulness and the fulfillment of his mission. I mean, he obediently fulfills his task in the agony of being forsaken. Here's the the father's second response, the withdrawal from the son. And yet he faithfully affirms his future by saying, my God. I mean, this is the moment whenever Jesus took hell for sinners. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus uses the term God instead of Father. I mean, Jesus has never been separated from his Father, but in this moment he is. And he's not separated from God's presence because that's impossible. I mean, God is everywhere, including hell. Hell. It's God's abandonment that Jesus experiences. Jesus is experiencing the very presence of God's wrath, the very absence of His comfort. I mean, in this moment, Christ felt the sinner's abandonment of God and His holy wrath that cuts the sinner off from all divine mercy. I mean, Jesus senses the very absence of God's mercy and His complete abandonment because He was bearing our sin in this moment. You should not think that it's the bodily pain of the, of the cross or his physical wounds that save you, as, as, as horrible as they are. Jesus must bear our eternal punishment, which is eternal separation from God and all of his goodness in hell. And this experience is, is nothing anyone has ever experienced before, before this moment. I mean, no one on earth has ever experienced being completely cut off From God, I mean, even the atheists or blasphemers, even today, experience the presence of God in common grace. I mean, they experience grace in creation, the sun rising and setting, the blessings of marriage and children and food and rest at night, the sanctifying effect of the church in the the world, the the one that they reject. But there won't be any of that in hell. I mean, in hell, a person who rejects God's mercy now will be cut off from God and all of his goodness completely. I mean, God's not absent in hell. It's his judgment that torments the sinner. But all goodness and all mercy will be absent. And only divine wrath will be present. And Jesus offers himself to bear that judgment. And he experiences the full alienation that that judgment entails in this moment. This is the cup that Jesus anticipates in the garden. This is why he sweats great drops of blood. And it wasn't just wrath for just one person, but every sinner who would ever believe. I mean, in those three hours, Jesus received the eternal wrath of every sinner in history who would ever trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, the wrath that, 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 that requires a, a never-ending period of time for just one sinner, Jesus took that for all sinners in a three-hour period, condensed in undiluted form. I mean, no normal human being could do that, but Jesus could because he was God. He could receive infinite and an eternal amount of wrath because he was infinite and an eternal person. This is the agony of the cross, not the physical scourging or nails as horrible as they are. This is why the Bible places the emphasis on the rejection of people and their mocking and now the judgment of Jesus in, in darkness and the abandonment and yet he never doubted the outcome. How did he start the cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say that because of the, uh, the father's alienation. He, he never doubts the ending. He knows what, what, what's happening right now, but he also knows the one that he belongs to. I mean, even in his abandonment, Jesus knew that he was God. He, he knew he, he would be exalted. Hebrews 12, 2. Who for the joy he said before him, endured the cross, despising the ch- shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus knew the throne was coming, and the Father does as well. And so he responds along with two others. Here's the, the third response. From the Father, it's, the, it's in the contrast of descriptions of, of what's happening. In verse 35 through, through 39. Look if you would at verse 35. It says, when some of the bystanders heard it, heard Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They, they, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. There are three responses between now and verse 39. These closing moments of the cross, there are three responses to what's happening at Calvary. People are interpreting it in different ways, three distinct people. There's the the detractor's question, this one. Let's see what what will happen. Then there's a declaration by the Father in verses 37 and 38, and then, then there's the centurion's deduction. Mark says the bystander which includes the crowd and all the leaders of Israel. How, how will the people witnessing the supernatural darkness that covered the land for three hours respond? Will they, will they repent at the Father's presence? And then see the suffering servant? Well, right here, the minute that the darkness subsides and they heard Jesus cry, they, they begin their mockery again. They heard Eloe, Elohim. And they thought that he was crying for Elijah. I mean, Jewish superstition is that Elijah will show up and help the righteous when they're in need. And you, you might remember that Elijah never, never died. He was taken up, up into heaven. And, and so the Jewish superstition is anytime a righteous man is in trouble, he can call on Elijah, and Elijah will come and minister to him. And, and they think that that's what Jesus is doing here. They're, they're saying he's calling for Elijah to come to rescue him because he's the righteous one. Let's see if he comes and saves this righteous one. Still mockery and sarcasm, even after the darkness. And they even give him a drink to keep him alive a little longer, to wet his mouth so they can hear what else he'll say. And Elijah doesn't show up, but God does in a profound way. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last... And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And there's the Father showing up once again, once in the darkness, once in the withdrawal, once in an act in the temple. It says, He cried and breathed out His last. Do you know when He cried? John 19.30 tells us, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said in a powerful voice, It is finished. It's accomplished, and then he breathed his last. And John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, not as a victim, but a victor. I mean, this is not a man suffocating or succumbing to death's grip. This is a powerful and purposeful cry, declaring that the course is completed. He makes one final statement in Luke twenty-three forty-six: "Into your hands, I commit my spirit." MacArthur said he said three things before the darkness. He says nothing during the darkness, and he makes four statements after the darkness, and then he breathed his last. And he breathed his last doesn't mean that he gave up. It means that he means that he chose to die at that moment. And think of it. He's just born God's full fury and eternal hell, concentrated in three hours, and he's still alive. He's still fully aware. He's still speaking. He died while in complete sovereign control over the moment. No man took his life. He willingly laid it down. And if he lays it down, he has the power to raise it up again, and he does. And once Christ declared His work was accomplished, He left the body that was prepared for Him in the incarnation. And when He did, the Father responds and describes what just happened on the cross. Verse 37 says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The bystanders see the cross as nothing but a joke. The father declares it's the end of the old covenant and the opening of the new. Now again, don't forget what's going on in the background. I mean, this is right in the middle of Passover. The priests are in the temple sacrificing the Passover lambs. And the veil was torn during the Passover with a temple full of priests and full of blood. I mean, they're not in the holies of holies, but they're outside of it administering the Passover sacrifices. Thousands of lambs are being slaughtered and the blood ran out of the temple into the Kedron Valley during that time. And as they're doing this, the thick curtain of the Holies of Holies, the, 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 the place where the high priest enters once a year on the Day of Atonement is torn from top to bottom so that they can see into the very presence of God. And the cur- curtain was purposeful because no one had direct access to God in the Old Testament. You needed a priest, and you needed to go to a certain place, and you need something to get you there, You had to go through the priesthood, a sacrifice was needed to cover the sins, and the high priest was only allowed in there once a year, and then to quickly sprinkle the blood and then back out. You can imagine their shock and their horror. I mean, you didn't go in there. You didn't even look in there because of God's holiness, and now it's wide open. And it's been torn from the top to the bottom showing who opened it. It was God himself. At 3 p.m., at the very moment... God sacrificed his own Passover lamb and Jesus Christ made full atonement and declared that it was accomplished. God interprets it by an act of opening the temple and ending the old covenant. The Mosaic era is gone at this moment. The end of the old and the beginning of the new. The shadows passed away. The sacrifices were no longer needed. The priesthood was voided And the temple was no longer the place where God would meet his people in that moment. And the Father interprets all of that by rending the curtain. That way is now open to all who will repent and believe. And it's not through priests or rituals or anything else. It's through Christ's victorious sacrifice alone. I mean, Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us the entire priesthood and temple and sacrificial system was temporary. It was only there to point Israel to the one sacrifice that would come. So all of that became pointless because the only sacrifice that saves has just been made. I mean, it was a declaration that God accepted His Son's sacrifice. It was a declaration that the temple was over. And do you know who the first person was to walk through the open veil? It was a Gentile executioner. Look at verse 39. It says, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Here's the the final response, and it's the centurion's deduction. The centurion was not a believer before the cross, but he becomes a believer at the cross. And this man was likely in charge of the execution. He was a centurion, so he was a commander of a hundred men. And he's been here the whole time. I mean, he saw the trial, possibly the arrest. He saw the scourging and the mocking. He heard every statement that Jesus made. He saw him not retaliate. He saw him endure it willingly. He sees the end. He hears him declare it is accomplished and then die. And he draws his conclusion. Truly or surely, this man was the Son of God. But notice what it was that caused him to believe that. Look at the verse again. It says, when the centurion, verse 39, saw that he expired in this manner. It's the best way to read that. I mean, the implication is that there's something about the way he died. Something about the way he died that caused the centurion to make this statement and draw this conclusion. I mean, think of this. If he's in charge of the execution, he's seen thousands upon thousands of people die, more likely. And yet there's something so different about Jesus that he concludes that this is a divine death. He was alive, and then he chose to die. He left his body. And it was evident that it was his choice. It was not forced by death. I mean, Jesus was in control, not his body's weakness, not the cross, not the Romans, not even death itself. He laid down his life after he accomplished his mission at his sovereign choosing, and he separated his spirit from the earthly body. And notice what this man calls him. truly this man was the son of God which if you know anything about the gospel of Mark, that's Mark's theme verse all the way back in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good, move, good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now here is a declaration by a Gentile executioner. At the very end, the centurion believes it, believes the gospel, and believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The first two people... Saved at the cross were a blaspheming Jew on one side of the cross and an unclean Gentile at the foot of the cross. Talk about grace. A thief and a centurion. And both responded to Christ and both did it after considering the cross. But the unbelieving leaders and the bystanders walked away and they're buried. Their descendants are buried in Beit Sharim, and they only have divine darkness to face because they rejected the Old Testament, the witness of Christ, what he did on the cross. And the question that you have to answer this morning if you are outside of Jesus is what do you conclude? I know what I conclude. I know what the brothers and sisters here conclude not because they're smarter than anybody else it's because the, the, the spirit of God opened our eyes to who the Lord was we were just like those religious rulers at one point but looking at the cross and the way in which Jesus died what do you conclude about him Are you indifferent in the face of, of all the times that God has witnessed to you and warned you or do you believe Hell is dark because it's the absence of God's mercy and the presence of God's judgment. And heaven has no need of light because the glory of the sun shines from the throne. And which you will experience depends on what you conclude about Jesus and his cross. And I guess the moral, if there is one, of this passage is don't follow the Jewish leader's path. This same Jesus that died this way rose and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf and mine, until the trumpet sounds and he rises and comes again and brings about exactly what Daniel seven thirteen says he'll he'll bring. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful your word and the insight that's there I am so thankful that you give us a book that reveals to us who you are and who we are so we would not to think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of you the question is not why was the judgment so severe the question is why it's not even more severe The question is why you would come and die for sinners like us, why you would open access to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, available to anyone who will repent and believe. And you'll do that for anyone who will repent and believe today. And we who have believed and have repented rejoice in what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.